Hello, friends. Greetings once again, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Improv and Magic with me, L.D. Madeira. I could not be more excited about today's episode because today I get to talk to my improv hero. He is the guru himself. He is David Rosowski. Dave has worked as an actor, teacher, director, and artistic director at Second City and has shared the stage with the likes of so many well-known performers like Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Amy Sedaris, Rachel Dratch, Keegan-Michael Key, and the list goes on. He has performed and taught worldwide, he's had multiple television and movie appearances, and he was even featured on a TED Talk called Life, The Product is the Process. His approach to improv is simple. Your awareness is the only thing you need. All that matters is now. And this year, Dave has finally released his new book, A Subversive's Guide to Improvisation, Moving Beyond Yes And, which anyone who loves improv and acting should definitely go out and purchase. Trust me, you'll be very glad you did. I met this man a few years ago when he taught as a guest at my home theater, Just the Funny, and ever since then, I've been hooked on this guy. He takes the thinking out of improv, and he constantly reiterates what I firmly believe, which is improv is acting. Folks, get comfortable and get ready to have your minds blown. Here is David Rizowski. I am so extremely happy and excited to be talking to this amazing human being, the legend himself, Mr. David Rosowski. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Hello, it's, it's such a joy to be here. It's just, I, I'm just so excited. I am. I'm just talking to you, looking at you, which is what people can't see right now. But it just, it's just, I'm getting this kinesthetic response of like, let's do this. Man, I'm just so excited to see you. I'm also excited to see you back in the world again. Because it's been a while, and obviously the pandemic played a major role in that. But you definitely took your time, but now you're out there performing again and teaching again. And of course, you're promoting the book, which we'll definitely talk about. Um, why did now feel like a good time for you to come back into the world? Um, science. Science. <laughs> uh, That's a good answer. Science is just science. The fact that I felt like... Um, the, uh, I'm, I'm pro vaccine. Um, I know that some people aren't, uh, I'm pro vaccine. I'm pro caution. Um, and I, we're still, you know, we're still cautious. We're not as cautious as we, we used to be, but I feel like, um, with the vaccines and with, uh, what's the one Paxlovid or whatever the hell it's called. Um, should I get sick? Um, it won't be as drastic as it was before. Um, one of the things that uh, that happened to me a year it was uh, probably July or August prior to uh, the the big lockdown in February or March of 2020. So July of August in uh, 20, uh, 2019, I was coming back from uh, not coming back. I flew to uh, to Australia or New Zealand, and I got a virus on that uh, trip, and I was there for two weeks. 
And it was the most violent coughing I have ever had. And I went to a doctor in Auckland and she said, you have a virus. There's really nothing you can do with it. And on the flight back, um, I remember just coughing my way through the antipodes and like losing it and thinking to myself, I will never, I will never allow myself to get this sick again. And then the, when COVID happened, I'm like, that's what it felt like. It felt like that. And so it took me, it took Laura and me, my girlfriend, Laura and, and I, it, it took us a bit of time to go, I'm, I'm, I'm not going out until I'm comfortable. And then I started teaching with, uh, with a mask on and then uh, I felt more comfortable with it. So it was just a, it was just a, a, a hatching uh, thanks to science. That's a long way of getting to just explaining science. So there you go. <laughs> was there any difficulty for you getting back into the world? Because I know a lot of people, once we were like more into the clear, some people, it was kind of like a shock to their system to, they were closed in and now they can be out. And some people had difficulty readjusting. Did you go through any of that? No, I, I, when, when I, during the, the lockdown and all that, I started teaching online. Uh, or I continued teaching online because I was teaching online before the lockdown, and uh, it was it was just really exciting for me. It still is exciting for me. I, I was teaching five or six classes online a week. I was thriving. I was uh, I was I was it was really great because I was working with the same people week after week after week after week, and I I I got confident. I mean, I always I've always been confident, but not always, but uh, I uh, I was confident in what I was teaching, and then. Um, when I was able to get out, it was more of, it wasn't a it wasn't a shock. It was this amazing release. And I just, I remember my first class, I was like, I'm crying in front of these people saying, I cannot believe that we're here. And a Aww. lot of the people that were in my classes were students that I'd never met in person, but I'd been working with for a couple of years. So I'm, I'm a very emotional person and uh, uh, I'm a very emotional person. And so when it came to like seeing people in person, I was like, this is fantastic. And the fact that I also, during the lockdown, I was working on my methodology. I was working on the book. I was really hunkering down and I was more focused than I'd ever been before. And I was just really excited to get out there and to do some of these uh, exercises and, uh, and teach some of these things that I developed while I was in lockdown. Um, and I, I, I would not be anywhere without, like I would not be anywhere without the students um they were the ones that really taught me it was just an amazing uh sleight of hand so to speak where it's like who's the teacher here um and then when i met people in person it was like let's do this i was really excited i still am i still am wonderful you know there's so much that i've always admired about you if there's one thing i definitely admire about you a lot it's your ability to photograph food Oh man. Because I follow you on Instagram and whenever you're having like a nice meal, you photograph it in a way where it looks like it's right out of a menu. Mm -hmm. What's your technique mm -hmm. for photographing food? Because it's so cool the way you do that. Okay. First off, if you don't light your food well, it's going to look like, literally look like poop. If you don't <laughs> light it well, it's going to look bad. So, so I always carry around my, of course, my, my phone. And when I buy a new phone, I don't buy a new phone because there's new gadgets on it. I buy a new phone because it's got a better camera. Uh, I have a degree in photojournalism and uh, uh, I was, I've been a photographer since I was probably nine or 10. And uh, I learned lighting in uh, journalism school. Uh, so I have my, my iPhone and I have the latest iPad. And so what I'll do is I'll open up a, um, 
an email, a blank email, and I'll hit the lighting all the way as, as high as the lighting will go on the iPad. And I'll put the iPad, I'll light the food over the, over the I will light the food with the iPad over the camera. And then uh, I'll take that and, and use an app called Pixelmator and I'll just zhuzh it up a little bit, not too much. Um, but thank you for asking. That's how I do it. And I recommend, and I, I probably could do the same thing without an iPad if I had a second iPhone, but I'm always carrying around my iPad anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's, it's all about amazing, the lighting. It's all about the lighting. And, and I got to tell you, you may think that it looks good, but when, but it's like, if there's a fucking brown schmear on a, on a plate, it's like, it's duty. It's just duty. <laughs> and it looks like fucking duty. And you may go, but it was really tasty. And it's like, yeah, you got, you got this kind of visual dysmorphia because it clearly <laughs> looks like duty. And it's like, but it was gravy. It's like, now, yeah, what's gravy? What's gravy? What's duty? But ass gravy. Um, I don't know. That's a horrible thing to say. But anyway, <laughs> ass gravy. <laughs> uh, that, that, you know what? That sounds like that could probably be the name of an improv group somewhere. Ass gravy. Ass gravy for sure could be the name. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to somebody in, uh, in Oakland who's uh, teaching uh, improv at a gay bar. And he goes, we're having a show. Uh, <laughs> I hope he's listening. We're having a show and uh, there's going to be a special like finale, grand finale. And I'm like, oh, what's the grand finale? It's like, I'm going to take a vibrator, a tiny, tiny vibrator and put it up my ass. And at the <laughs> end of the show, I'm going to have an audience member like manipulate it. And, oh and my it's like, God. wow, wow, wow. And keep in mind, you invited me to say whatever I want to say. So <laughs> this is all, this is all good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, of course, uh, oh man, we're off to a fantastic start, aren't we? <laughs> it's so funny because when I get invited on podcasts, I'm like, whatever plan you have, and I know you didn't have a plan. I mean, you obviously have a have, have some questions, which I think is great. Uh, usually it's like, whatever it is that, that your plan is, we're not going to do that. We're going to do Of course not. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I just ask the question and then I just step out of the way and whatever happens... <laughs> That's what we get. We get ass gravy. Yeah. That's what we get. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, I am such a lover of your new book, uh, A Subversive Guide to Improvisation. Um, we were just talking about it before we started recording. And you've been teasing this book for a couple of years now. What made you finally decide to get this book out into the world? Uh, the pandemic, the lockdown. I mean, during that time, I'm like, I got all this time. What am I going to do? And uh, I, I started looking at, uh, because I, I, was really, I was really just going to take some of the blogs that I've done and throw something together like that. And because of the pandemic, I started to enumerate my exercises, list my exercises and think about what, were my, what was my motivation to, uh, to create that exercise and what were things that I was seeing in the present improvisational community that just drove me crazy and it was just like that where that was really it to look at pardon me improvisation and go why are why are we just doing all these fucking party tricks all the time why are we doing these party games all the time where it could be so much more than what it is and um people been asking me to put a book out for a while uh and i got really excited because like yeah what would the purpose of a book be? And for me, the purpose of the book would be to take my methodology and my, the way that I'm doing things so that when I travel around from, from, from city to city to city to city, and you know, three or four years in a row, I was on the road 200 days out of the year traveling all around the world uh, until lockdown. And when I left, I would be, it's like Johnny Appleseed and I'd be gone. But now I go, if I have a book, 
then my methodology can spread and my philosophy can spread. And the fact that there's a, um, I think it's really important is the, the important part that almost didn't make it in the book was the, the memoir portion. And I think a lot of people are looking at the memoir portion and saying, I, I, it's like nobody has ever put together. Them. I don't know. Maybe people have Alan Arkin's book, which is a fantastic book. I think it's called an improvised life. The late Alan Arkin's book was, had a little bit of that memoir to it. Bernie Solon's book, uh, days and nights in the second city had a little bit of it, but it's not coming from somebody who's just me being just an improviser. So I wanted to put that down there so everybody can go, can look at it and go, Oh, Rosowski has had so many, pitfalls and still has created a life out of improvisation if he can do it i can do it and i think that's really really important because i don't think there's a book out that's like that i, I could be wrong maybe i'm not i'm just not reading it but i, I don't think there's anything like that um, well i certainly haven't seen a, a book like that and i love that you start the book with your memoirs because i learned so much about you that i didn't know before and i think a lot of people are interested in learning more about you and what got you here and on that note why don't we go ahead and get to the beginning with you uh where did you grow up i grew up in chicago uh i grew up in chicago i lived in chicago pretty much my whole life except for the last uh 27 years that i've been here in, in los angeles but uh went lived in chicago uh uh grew up in a in, in a really cool neighborhood called rogers park in a typical beautiful chicago bungalow people should look up what a chicago bungalow looks like um, in a Jewish, pretty much Jewish Catholic neighborhood. Um, and, uh, we moved around a lot for a little bit of time and then we landed here and my mom said, you know, sign me up for improv for, um, something called drama classes. And I was eight or nine, nine or 10. And I didn't know what it was. And I just fell right into it. And it was, it, I decided then that this was the direction that I was going to go. And, um, I felt like maybe fireman or astronaut wasn't going to work for me. Um, uh, cause I smoked too much pot even then. Uh, and it's like, I don't know the first stone fire astronaut. Uh, but, um, uh, uh and also <laughs> symphony conductor. I know <laughs> like as if someone's going to call me up and go, you should get up there and conduct the symphony. But, um, uh, that was it. And, uh, uh, when I went to college, my dad said, get a degree in something else. Um, <laughs> not theater. And I got a degree in journalism, photo, uh, photojournalism. And uh, my last year of college, I went, I really miss doing theater. So I auditioned for a play and that play was called The Firebugs and I got a lead role in it. And it was like, mm, it's all over. This is, this is what I'm gonna be doing now for the rest of my life. And it was an amazing time to be in Chicago in the uh, early eighties, because uh, theater was blooming. It was just blooming. So uh, that's, that was the start of my journey right there. What was it about theater and drama in particular that called you to it so much that you just had to do it? Uh, losing myself, hmm. that concept of self, uh, big nose, buck tooth, horn rim glasses, person, you know, eight, you know, eight or nine years old, who is, you know, a, a victim, not a victim, but, uh, you know, called a dirty Jew by people in my neighborhood. And then going to the Bernard Horwich Jewish Community Center where there was a real professional type uh, uh, theater community there who took me under their wing and gave me a sense of community and a sense of self, the beginning of, of self-worth and confidence. Uh, and, and, and realizing that, I, uh, it, I mean, of course I didn't realize it when I was eight or nine, but it's like, we create our own, 
we, we create our own adventure, our own story, our own story of who it is that we are. And when you're eight or nine years old and you're like, oh, wow, is life so hard? <laughs> like, yeah, you have no idea. When you're eight or nine years old and you go, you know, you, 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 and things are, are rough and, you know, and family situation and, you know, my, my parents fought a lot. And then when I went there, it was like, oh, I could just, for X amount of time, I could not be there. I could be somewhere else. And that being somewhere else is a huge part. It wasn't just that I was standing on stage with a bunch of you know, adults playing. It was like I was somewhere else playing someone else. And all those other things that were parts of my life were pushed into the background for maybe two or three hours a day. And then you, you go, That's, there's peace here. There's there, there's peace here. There's uh, organization here. There's reason here. There's you know, that we don't have in our day-to-day life. But for three hours a day, there was me with a script, with a bunch of people, somebody had a plan, and they weren't arguing. And it was like, oh, that's fucking great. That's really So great. you were you were attracted to the uh, the escapism of it all? I was attracted to, and of course, I didn't know that at that time. <laughs> escapism is <laughs> one way of putting it. But it was this, um, it, it, it was the concept of, of, of an, it was, Theater and, and certainly improvisation, and I think I talk about this a little bit in the book, it's an existential experience. It's the greatest existential experience because it's you, when, when we're practicing theater or improvisation, well, improvisation is theater. When we're practicing improvisation or theater, it's you doing that, but it's not you doing that, but it's you feeling that, but it's not you feeling that, but you're feeling that. And it's you interacting, but it's not you interacting, but you're interacting. And it's, it's not really necessarily escapism as much as it's a parallel way of living your life for that period of time. And I think that what, what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to improvisation is improvisation is the great, it's like there's not theatrical improvisation. There's nothing like it in the world. It's not like a jazz in, in, when you're jazz, when you're an improv, like Charlie Parker or, you know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, where it's like you're scatting and you're improvising all this. This is really different because you're taking on a different persona. And this persona is this open door that allows you to do whatever it is that needs to be done in that moment with somebody who wants to do that with you in that moment. Is it escapism? Certainly. But looking at it from a, looking at it from the way that I love looking at it, which is like for a bit, for a bit, I'm not going to be me, but I'm going to be me. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the fun thing. And that's the thing that most a lot of people don't realize and have a hard time with it, because, of course, it's me. I'm doing it. it's like, yeah, of course, it's you doing it. Are you you in your dream when you're in a dream? Are you you? It's like, yeah, you're you, but you're not really you, but you're you. And you're, are you experiencing things like, no, I'm not really experiencing things, but you know, if you had a dream where you were like, I don't know, fondling my ass and the next day you saw me, wouldn't you feel a little bit weird? <laughs> because it's like, I don't know what you went through, but does that make sense? It does. It does. Cause when we're performing, you're you and not you at the same time, but still you, I totally get that. Right. Right. Well, you know, as I was reading uh, the book, one thing that really surprised me was that your first real improv experience was actually performing in prisons. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about that and what that experience was like. Um, another That's another aspect of the existential experience where 25-year-old Dave Rosaski uh, 
uh, this Jewish long haired Jewish guy from West Rogers Park who, you know, not really is not not really the gritty part of Chicago is performing in prisons across the United States. You know, like one week I just was thrown in there and I'm and I'm improvising it. Uh, I'm improvising there in mask. And it was um, a culture shock, uh, to say the least. But it was also uh, it seems like it, looking back on it now, having written the memoir, looking back on it now, it was a natural progression of everything that I was going through in my life because I'm, I'm, I consider myself a little bit of a muckraker and uh, my folks were always very progressive, liberal, um, uh, uh, you know, giving up, going on civil rights marches and um, very, very, very political. Uh, and so for me, going into the prisons was another way of showing a, a, po a political point of view uh, and going in there performing as um, it, it was very regulated. The, the, the performances weren't as free as like a herald or free as a montage that you're doing. It was regulated. So it's sort of like a, a, a game board that you walk through and you, you didn't take suggestions from the audience, but there was a box in the back of each game, little three by three, uh, panel that you stood on and you would pick uh you you would pick a I don't know it was like like you you lost your job and you would pick that and then you you'd improvise a scenario your house caught fire your your wife was raped you know those fun things that you don't have um but it was freeing it was frightening it was controlled it also opened a door to a world that I didn't know anything about it made me very uh physically it, it, it created a, a the work was done with mask work and it was physical and it was non-comedic improvisation. So going in there, it made me not afraid to talk to people. It was another way of uh, talking to these prisoners who were killers, rapists, drug dealers, muggers, all these people and having a conversation with them, an opening where it's like, we could talk of this common ground. There's a common ground here. Uh, so it, it gave me confidence. Everything was just about confidence building um, when it, when it came to Geese Company, uh, and eventually I was I was pro, I was uh, contracted there for a year, and I lasted ten months, and I couldn't take it anymore because it's it just it just rips your soul apart. And uh, there are people that were there for three and four years, and I'm like I don't know how they, I don't know how you do it. Wow. Um, but it was it's really intense, and it made me a different improviser. Came back to Chicago, you know, uh, eighty three, eighty four. After being on the road, uh, came when I say came back to Chicago, we were based out of Chicago, but it was, you know, who's going to see me improvise when I'm in Joliet Correctional Center? <laughs> so came back in Chicago and uh, hit the, went almost directly to Improv Olympic IO. And I noticed that I was, uh, I was just different than anybody else. And that difference, I think, made me stand out. Um, and it also, yeah, I'd already been a professional improviser for a year. In what way were you different from everybody? I was I was physical. I was outgoing. I was I had I had a deep character. I had a, a deep understanding of character, the physicality of character, um, which then years and years later, when I worked with uh, when I started being turned to the viewpoints. Excuse me, when I got turned on to the viewpoints, that physicality connected me with the viewpoints. Um, and it, and it made me more aware of movement, connection, staying in the moment, because I was already, and I, I think it, we have to keep remembering this. When I went to IO, it was called the Improbable Olympic back then. When I went to IO, um, 
there were only three, and this is arguable, and if somebody wants to go, you're wrong, I'll go, yeah, you're absolutely right, I'm wrong. But there were only three improv schools in the country, maybe in the world. Really? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. 1982, 83, what, weren't, what wasn't there? There was no Groundlings. Um, there was no UCB. There was maybe there was a Gotham, uh, the Gotham uh, folks in New York. Um, uh, and when I include these three, one of them is um, the one in Minnesota, Dudley Riggs. Um, but who else? Nothing in Florida, you know, N nothing in, in, in Texas, nothing in, in, you know, nothing anywhere. Uh, maybe the, the committee, but they weren't teaching improv as far as I know in San Francisco. So I come in there and I'm already a professional improviser. I never really thought about it until this moment. You know, I came in there. So in that way, I was different than everybody right away because everybody just was like, well, we're studying with this guy, Dell, and maybe we took classes at Second City. But we certainly weren't on the road improvising. And so I come in and I'm like, I've been doing this for a while. I didn't have confidence. I was doing it like, I don't, I don't know, because Sharna threw me right into Dell's class and most people go through Sharna and I was thrown right into Dell's class. And I'm like, oh, here's a guy who talks like this and he's, like, he's kind of an asshole. And I'm like, who is this guy? I don't, you know, everybody's like, oh, Dell, he's a guru. It's like, I don't need a fucking guru. <laughs> but I love what he was saying. I really dug what he was saying. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, he's, he's kind of a mean, he's a mean person. Uh, but I really love what he was saying. And I love the camaraderie. And I love the fact that nobody else was doing this. I felt like we're in this little, we're in this, we got the secret that nobody knows about. I was on the second Herald. I was on the second house team, the second house team. And when I say the second house team, I don't mean at Improv Olympic. I mean in the world. It, what? <laughs> what? And, and everybody was excited about it. And the heralds were 40 minutes long. And Dell was this, you know, this shaman who was kind of throwing these things together. And he introduced the herald. And, and the people that were there were like, Turn, some of these people have turned into like some of the greatest actors and directors and producers and writers in the world. And we all started this little hellhole, rat, literally rat-infested hellhole on Belmont in Chicago. And from there, the reason that you and I met is because I went to there. Mm. You know what yeah. I mean? So if you want to go, how do we meet? I'm like, well, it all started at Improv Olympic. And that's how we met, in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. I understand that in the book, you didn't jump to Second City right away. You had to be talked into it by your dad. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I had to be talked into it by my dad. And um, uh, uh, and it's just so interesting how, you know, I had to be talked into it by my dad. Uh, and he kept sort of going, when are you going to do this? Because for my dad coming from depression era and the idea of, and first he was like, let me get you a job as a, as a, as a, as an electrician. It's like, I don't want to do that. And he, he saw me more, he saw me more confident than I saw me. And I think it's really important that you go, you will know what you will know and you know what you know, you know, you'll know, I will know what I need to know and I need to know what I need to know. And I never felt like I was ready until I started to uh, kind of sit in on some classes at Second City and went, oh, I, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I can do that. Um, and then I just couldn't get enough of that. I could not, I auditioned for it. I got in, I auditioned for the training center. And I got in and all that I wanted to do from that point forward was just to sit and watch classes and watch 
improvisers be in class. It's weird. Like I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll participate, but I'd also want to see how this teacher teaches this thing and how does the teacher handle these things. And I think that that's really one of the things that led me to what it is that I do now um, is to look at it and see how people, how people were inspired by these teachers because the teachers were, were, they were everything, you know? And when I saw a teacher mishandle a student, I'm like, fuck that guy. It, you know, God is my witness. I will never treat anybody like that ever, mm-hmm. ever. And, uh, or I'd see somebody really take somebody under their wing and go, they're spending, that teacher spending a lot of time with that student. And I looked at him like, what else would they do? You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's a, there's a lot of teachers going, you don't get it. Um, but you'll get it next time. Two more up. Well, what, what did that person do with that rejection? Mm-hmm. And other people are going, well, you know, you really spend a lot of time with Carol. And it's like, yeah, you know what? And if you fuck up, I'm going to spend a lot of time with you. Or if you don't get it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, hopefully, so the challenge for me is to go, I want you to, I want you to grok this. I want you to wrap your head around this thing. And if you don't get it, I don't want to work at a place where it's like, you've got to get these five lessons in, in one day, because what ends up happening is you don't spend time with these students and these students don't get the feeling of what it feels like to feel the feelings they're feeling in the moment they feel the feelings. And then what ends up happening is what, what ends up happening now, which is most improvis- improvisers are speeding through it because they don't know what it means to slow it down because they've never had a teacher or at a school where the emphasis was on anything other than get these people through these levels so we can get these people through these levels so we can get these people through these levels. So it's a fiduciary thing that started and again, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, should I be saying this? I'm going to fucking say it. I think it all happened when Sharna, Sharna went from – because it, IO became so popular and people wanted to get on stage that the 40-minute heralds were then cut into 20-minute heralds. And because the 20-minute heralds were then cut off, people weren't feeling those feelings and the teachers weren't teaching it because the teachers had to get the, that information out. Yeah. The, so many times you see a lot of um, improvisers who are – too afraid to take their time, which always kind of weirds me out. I love being able to just be on stage with someone and we don't have to watch the clock. We don't have to worry about the next show or the next piece. We could just be here and just take our time. I think a really interesting thing. I mean, I totally, obviously I totally agree with you, but I think that there aren't teachers who are teaching that. And if you don't have a teacher teaching that, then how are you going to know that you can do that? And for me, I teach that. That's what I teach so that anybody – and I, not only do I teach it, but I also do it in my scenes. I did a show with Jamie Moyer at Pan Theater uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she and I were, were sitting – you know, we were playing two characters sitting in an, in an audience at a Broadway show, and it's like, shh, 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 the show's starting. And we just sat, and it was 30 seconds of nothing. 30 seconds of just us sitting there. No, no comment, no, no comment, no, no bits. And I was thinking – Look at what we're doing. We're being totally quiet for 30 seconds. God, I And the love audience that. is wrapped. It's so fucking great. The audience is wrapped. And if you're sitting there going, oh, my God, I, I haven't talked in, in eight seconds. It's like, that's your focus? Because if that's your focus, then, then, what, then don't be on stage with me. 
Yeah, because for a lot of people, it's too scary to just be there. Something has to happen. Like, oh, look, the raptors are falling down. We got to run. Or, hey, why did you sleep with Jerry or something like that? It's too scary to just go, here we are. Right, right. And, and so for me, that's an existential crisis. That's that person bringing themselves into the piece as opposed to these two characters are sitting here in silence, in awkward silence. Sit in awkward silence. So what does that require you to do? It requires you to go, the two characters sitting are sitting in awkward silence. I'm not sitting in awkward silence. I'm, I'm in charge of what the character is saying. So do I have the balls to just sit here in awkward silence? And does my partner know that, like, here's the agreement. This is what we're going to do. We're going to sit here in awkward silence. Because you got to get your partner to agree with that. And you got to play with you got to yeah. play with people that know to do that. So you have to have a teacher that knows to teach that, and you've got to have a theater that knows to allow that to happen. So from the ground, yeah. from the very literally the ground up, that's how we get uh, that's how we get improv to be more theatrical. And you know, I taught a class yesterday of people that. Here in L.A., uh, God bless, here in L.A., I taught a class of actors that I worked with a, a few weeks, a couple months ago. And it's like, let's do another level that's more in depth. Let's do another level where we're all in agreement. Let's do another level where you all understand the methodology and now we use it. And I'm going to tell you, that five-hour, six-hour class, with a, with a break, that six-hour class moved, everybody was moved because it's luxurious. And when you take a class with me, we go through one stupid thing and that's all for three hours and that's it. And it's all, and, and, and now there's a book, a subversive's guide to improvisation. There's a book that you can read before you, before you, you meet me. Um, but I, 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 blame, I blame the schools. I blame the schools and I blame them before. I blame the teachers and I blame them before. And uh, how dare I? Well, I don't know. Nobody said that. But I ran, I ran Second City. I was the, the artistic director of Second City for nine years. So, you know, I wanted my teachers to teach that slow thing. Right. I wanted them to, to do that. And when, when you have somebody at the helm, it changes the way that everybody reacts to each other. And it gives yeah. the teachers permission. Well, it definitely does sound like for many people what you – teach and improv and your methodology for a lot of people, they could consider it kind of a radical way of approaching improv. Cause it's so different from what we see in the norm and all the who, what, where stuff and stuff like that. Have you ever experienced any uh, pushback from people? Oh that, my like, God. Disagree? Oh my God. So much. I don't, I, I probably experienced more pushback than any other teacher. And, and, and that's not me going rah, rah me. It's like, I have this idea and I can't get it out. I can't get it out. I cannot not do this. I cannot not teach this. I do not want to teach your dumbass reindeer games. I'm not going to teach that. So a lot of people come in, not so much anymore, but certainly years ago where I was, you know, some guy named Dave Rosowski. Now I'm Dave Rosowski. And uh, uh, so I get pushback from people. Now people are taking my class because of that. But before people are going, oh, that's not what I was taught. It's like, okay, can you put that aside? for the two hours, three hours that we're going to be together and go, we don't need that. It's like, I don't know. That's in my bloodstream. It's like, I don't think so. You know what's in your bloodstream? Blood. You know what's not in your bloodstream? <laughs> Improvisation. You're deciding not to do that. And to be honest with you, uh, 
because I'm very passionate and you know, you know, you've taken many classes. We've taken, we've worked together many times. I'm very yes, passionate and I'm very, I'm hands-on, sometimes literally hands-on. You will see me uh, on my knees, on the corner of the stage, like watching you. No, just watch it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I am, excuse the expression, I'm a coach there in a way. I'm a coach there. So I have had at least five people get up and leave my class. I've had mm. five people just get up and go, no, I'm not going to take this anymore. I don't like what you're treating me. It's like, okay, before you leave, tell me what I did so that I know. And they just get up and go. It's like, all right, if you don't tell me what I did, then I can't change because I am willing to change. But uh, I will not change my methodology. I will not fucking change it. And, uh, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Um, but you will never have more of a passionate – empathetic, emotionally connected, maybe to a fault, um, director or teacher than I. Yeah. Well, you know, on the other side of the coin, while we talk about people who have pushed back, there are also a lot of people who take your, your workshops and your classes and they really come out of their change. And I know that definitely happened to me. The first time I took a workshop with you when you were visiting our theater in, in Florida, I walked out of there and I'm like, holy shit. Now this is the improv that I love. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Because that's the improv that I love too. I mean, for me, uh, what, what, what I, and, and, and thank you. And it's, I, I, I joke about this. I joke about this. Like, uh, what I want is I want to create an army of improvisers so that I can play with people. And mm. I think that's really what I want. Um, and I see, I think the greatest thing that an improv teacher can watch is somebody go, wait a minute, that doesn't, I see now. Yeah. And that's the greatest thing that you can give somebody. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I don't know anything. I don't know. I don't know anything better than that, especially if you're bringing in a concept that's, that's foreign to most people, which is this stop working so stupid hard. And yeah, it's really this simple. And my, my methodology is really quite simple. And what I've been teaching lately, because I think one of the arguments that people have or one of the, the critiques that people have is, um, you know, when, you, when we're working together, you, you don't really let scenes progress. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't let scenes progress because if we don't have a strong foundation at the beginning of a scene, I'm not going to let it progress. If you don't know how to start a scene or be grounded in a scene, then you don't know how to continue a scene. And mm -hmm. so we're going to we're going to work on that. And then lately, I've been—I haven't been calling it scenes. I've been calling them glimpses. Hmm. And when you, because it's like we're not—we're not—we are doing scenes, but they're not like scenes in a play, where there's a there's a, there, there's a definitive beginning and definitive end. So what we're really doing is we're kind of poking our head into this because we go the scene starts in the middle. So we're poking our head into uh, program. We, we, we now return to our program already in progress and we poke our head in and then it's like, I think I've seen enough. And then we close the door and we go on to something else. But when we have to be these grand scenes that have to mean something, it's like, then we're focusing on the end, which takes us out of the, the now. Yeah. We're focusing on trying to tell a story. Oh, basically. Fuck. Right. And my question always is, do you want to be the story or do you want to tell the story? 
um, it's the being of the story. The story is you, the, pro, the product of improvisation is the process of improvising. And that's the story. Because if you're telling a story, then you're pulled out from it. Because when you and I are playing together, your concept of what the story is about, and my concept of what the story is about are definitely two separate things. They may have some kind of crossover, but no. There's something called um, attachment theory. Um, and attachment theory is uh, basically this. Attachment theory says that when, for what we're talking about, when you see two actors performing on stage, they're not really, when you see two improvisers performing on stage, they're not really two improvisers performing on stage. They're one unit. And that mm -hmm. unit is, we're going to be doing this. And underneath, you know, uh, un underneath, uh, underneath the, the, the puppet theater is the two actors going, I want us to do this. And the other person going, okay, we'll do this. So it looks like they're two, but they're actually one. And I think that that's just such an important thing to realize is we are creating this. And when we're telling a story, you, the attachment theory won't work because there, there's, there's a disconnect. The disconnect is your concept of what the story is. It's the same reason right. I don't teach a character class anymore. And it's because a character is just the expression of the actor going through from one beat to another beat to another beat to another beat. It's like, what's a character, you know? So I don't, I, I can, I have, I'm pretty, I'm known as a character person, but I can't, I just, I don't have the time for that right now. I literally don't have the time for that right now. Yeah. One thing you definitely talk a lot about in the book, and I love this so much, which is one of the reasons why you're my improv hero, is you talk a lot about the difference between an improviser and an actor who improvises. <laughs> and it definitely makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. Why do you feel like it's very important to understand the difference between those two? And what is the difference between those two? Um, well, one, one of the things that uh, that if you consider yourself an actor who improvises, there's a depth to what it is that you're doing. There's an understanding. And so the moment you, you, because a lot of people go, I'm an improviser, I'm not an actor. It's like, what if you call yourself an actor? What, what do you got to lose if you call yourself an actor? You have more to gain than to lose. I don't know what you, you lose, but here's, here's what you gain. You gain thousands and thousands of years of theatrical history that you can use in your, the expression of what it is that you're doing. Uh, and then uh, when you're also calling yourself an actor who improvises, you then get to study improvisation from somewhat of an academic point of view, which is like, what's the history of what it is that we're doing? Um, who's Viola Spolin? Uh, who's Anne Bogart? Who's Tina Landau? Who's Mary Overly? Um, what did Dell offer? What's Commedia dell'arte? And um, all those things, like, like for example, those, those things. Uh, what's a mammoth play? Have I ever been in a mammoth play? Have I ever done a mammoth play? Uh, what's Shakespeare? Like all that other stuff. Anything that can flow into the vessel that you are, that inspires you and enriches you in some way, why not do that? Because mm -hmm. it, it, it gives you so many options. It facets you. I know that that's not a word, but it creates more facets of what it is that you're doing. And it creates more in inroads into creating a, a very wonderful scene. So uh, an improviser, so as I say in the book, an, uh, uh, an improviser is just there for the laughs. You know, just looking from one laugh to another laugh to another laugh. An actor who improvises is going from one beat to another beat to another beat. So they're creating something that, that will lead to a laugh. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, the improviser is, is like, again, focusing on the laugh. 
the actor is focusing on the dynamics of the relationship. You know, um, the improviser just uh, gets out there and, and goes, we're going we're gonna to throw a bunch of shit on the wall and see what happens. An actor who improvises understands what point of view is and understands that dynamic. Um, and we can, I can look at people and I can go, you don't know any, you have no acting skills at all. And you have no acting skills at all. And, um, and it shows. And, and uh, a, lot, a lot of people that I work with, excuse me, I guess something right. A lot of people that I work with in a class, they'll say, um, <laughs> they'll say, one of the first thing I say is this, this is going to, this is going to be totally anathema to what it is that you, you're, you're regularly working with. Uh, and, uh, this is going to be hard for you. And I'm not asking you to unlearn anything. I'm just asking you to take what it is, the training that you have, put it outside the door while we're here and work on this together. So all of us can just work on that together. And one of the things that people say at the end of class, well, I'll say, what did you learn? What'd you get out of this class? And someone says, I love this so much. I just love it. And I cannot wait to turn the rest of my cast onto it. And I want to go, that's one perfect way to lose friends. Don't bring this in <laughs> to your group. And I'm not being sarcastic. I'm saying because we work together from this time and we were working incrementally to get to this point of freedom, because it really is freedom, because you're not connected to the who, the what, and the where. You're not connected to the rules that say, don't do this, do this, and don't ask questions. Don't talk about people who aren't here. What I'm inviting you to do is to be a human being, being human. And this yes. is what we're doing. And there aren't those there aren't those walls of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So you're going to enter into the group that you're with where their big thing is get the who, the one, the where out at the beginning of the scene. And you're not gonna, well, you're going to hear shit from that, from your, your coach, fucking coach. It's not a coach. And that's another thing that actors who improvise. Actors who improvise don't have coaches. They have directors and teachers, mm -hmm. you know, then coaches. This idea of like, we're on, we're on an improv team. It's like, why is it a team? It's based in... In, in, in theater, why isn't an improv cast? Yeah, you and know? you say in the book, uh, you know, uh, we, we call teachers coaches and we call uh, uh, groups teams and we wonder why improv is so competitive. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, when the fuck did that happen? And people go, well, you know what I mean. It's like, if you know what I mean, why are you trying to throw me off by calling it a team? Let's just call it what mm -hmm. it is. And the same thing goes with when we talk about, oh, you know what I like about TJ and Dave? They play slow. It's like, no. They don't play slow. There, it's not like we're going to her. No, they play mindfully. Well, you know what I mean. It's like then use the word slow. Mm -hmm. Don't. I'm sorry. Then don't use the word slow. Use the word mindful, because that that will help you when you're here. You're not going to get out there and go. What I need to do is play slower. No. What you need to do is you need to play more mindful, mm -hmm. and then you'll play slower. Yeah, I'm always weirded out by people who do improv but don't think of themselves as actors because, first of all, you can look at it in a practical sense. You're on a stage, you're playing a part, you're in front of an audience, you're an actor, all right? And second of all, when you look at yourself as an actor and not simply as an improviser, it makes what we're doing so much more worthwhile because it's not just about, well, let me make people laugh. Let me, let me get some, some yuck yucks out of this. No, there's something more and there's something real here. And I feel like, and I'm sure you must've experienced this too. Audiences appreciate that even more 
than just a bunch of people standing on stage trying to make everybody laugh. Well, let's take it from this. I've seen pictures of you and maybe videos as well of you performing. You know how to dress, brother. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, you look fucking great on stage. You always look good on stage. Maybe you're just showing me who it is, but you got a nice t- top. You have a nice <laughs> top on. You have a, you have, I love your blouse. Uh, you got a nice, you know, you're always wearing a nice shirt. You always, you know, it's like, Am I wrong on that? Am I, am I just? No, when I'm on wrong? stage, I always have to dress like I'm an actor. And that's when, what I'm talking about. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, no problem. You can cut me off as much as you want. But, uh, but you know, I, you know, I see people who perform, I've seen people perform in shorts and I'm like, Mm-mm. why, why? No. When I walk no. into, whether it's my home theater or whether I'm performing at a festival, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to show you the best version of me. And the best version of right. me is the actor. Right. And I didn't, okay, babysitter. What the fuck do they cost? How much is a babysitter? An evening of babysitting. I don't know, $150? Maybe? I don't know. Let's say $100. I don't know what it is. Parking. How much is parking? I don't know. Maybe in Florida it's cheap. A parking in downtown Chicago is going to cost you $30. So right there, it's $130. Dinner is going to cost you $100. You know, already, it's almost $300. Yeah. The ticket, the ticket's the cheapest thing, probably. But let's say the ticket is $25. There's another 50 bucks. So the evening is costing you uh, close to $200, $400, maybe $400. So I'm going to sit in a fucking audience, and I'm going to watch you in your juicy couture fucking ass branded <laughs> show clothes, and you have a titty shirt on. It's like, fuck you. You know, or a shirt that says Purdue. It's like, what? What? <laughs> Don't fucking Purdue me because, I, you know, and also I got to tell you, when I look good, I feel good. Yes. And I got show shoes. I got show shoes. There are a pair of shoes, and I haven't worked with Carrie Clifford in a number of years, but there are show shoes that I have that I only wear with Carrie Clifford. <laughs> only. They're spectators, and they're gorgeous shoes, and I only wear them with Carrie. And I haven't worked with her a long time. And the shows are gathering dust. But you know what? I got my show shoes. I got my show pants. I got my show socks. Got show socks now that are the same color as my book cover. So that's my little thing going, I have a branding. So it's like <laughs> all that stuff. I get a fucking haircut. I'm shaved. I'm on stage. Yep. Same here. Same here. I don't want to look like I just got out of bed. Nope. No. Yeah, that's the professional that we're talking about. Yeah, that and right it also serves the audience exactly like what you said. People are spending money on parking and dinner and maybe a babysitter and maybe they just got new evening clothes. So I want to give that audience the best possible experience that they that they deserve. Quite frankly, right. And when I was at Second City, I don't know if you 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 know this, but um. When I was there, and I left in 95, um, you wore a suit. Yeah, that's true. Well, our shows were all in suits, and I wore a suit. And when there was a new show, I got a new suit. And what did Second City do? At the, uh, so we, we ran uh, on a Sunday night. The stage managers would gather, gather all our – we'd have to take our suits and our, and our shirts and, and throw them in a bin, and they were dry cleaned and laundered. And then the next day, they were hung up. On, on, they were hung up like, come on now, giddy up, man. Like, and then it's like, we look good. And the show opens and it starts, you know when it starts? On time. 
<laughs> I did 10 shows. I was there. I did 10 shows. I was at Second City for a long fucking time. Never, ever did we not start on time. Eight shows a week. Start on time. God, thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> my God. Why not? You, it's not a surprise. Like, oh, my God, we have a show. Anybody know we have a show? Like, you got a show. Don't make me sit in a stupid audience while you do what? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. If you need to start later, put it on the ticket that we start at 815. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm always fond of asking people who've been through Second City this. Um, what is that feeling like when you first walk into Second City, knowing that this is the Second City where so many of the greats have passed through? What is that feeling of walking into the doors for the first time and being there as a student into this well-renowned institution? Um, I, because I grew up in Chicago, um, I had been going to second city prior to me being a student and, uh, uh, what we would do, uh, cause I was, I was heavily involved in my reform temple youth group and, uh, we would take trips to watch uh, a show or the improv set, which was free. And, uh, it was, so I, I can't remember the first time that I was there, but I do I do remember the feeling of it and the feeling of it was first it was really humid because they they didn't have good air conditioning. So uh, you walk up the stairs, you park in front, you park in front of the theater and there are these three arches that used to be uh, attached to the Garrick theater in Chicago, an old movie house in Chicago. They were just phenomenal. And Bernie Sullen says they're tearing the building down. I want them. And uh, not only did they take them off the building and put them in front of Second City, but when Second City moved, they moved the arches. So, anyway, <laughs> so you walk up and you see these arches and already it's this feeling of there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, uh, 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 of grandeur to it. And you walk in and the, 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 it's an old dairy. So the, the bricks are there, you know, Chicago bricks. And mm-hmm. you walk up the stairs and there's the old shield that says Second City on it. That was the original uh, shield from when they started in 1959 and then you started seeing you saw pictures on the wall and you're like jesus christ some great people came from here <laughs> you know really really great people and i'm looking at going wow i i i i just this is this is otherworldly like i don't belong here i'm gonna mm-hmm. watch it and i never ever wanted to work there because i always felt like I, first off everybody was beautiful and handsome and funny <laughs> And Gentile. Everybody was so fucking <laughs> Gentile. And it's like, ah, what, what am I doing here? And, and then <laughs> I, and to look at it, and they did not stop making me laugh. And I felt like I can't take it. I just couldn't take how funny it is. And those people were um, uh, 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 George Went. Uh, I saw George Went. I saw Lance. Uh, people you might not. Uh, George Lance, Lance Kinsey. Uh, Jim Belushi. Uh, uh, Tim Kazarinsky, like, I don't know that the, these names mean anything to people, but, um, uh, uh, well, certainly like Jim Belushi were, does. The, yeah. Jim Belushi. Yeah. Jim Belushi, but yeah, Jim Belushi and all these other people do. And the fact that Jim Belushi is the one people that know it's like, oh, these people are so great. And George went, and now everybody, you know, but I know Jim too, but like, these are people that are friends of mine. These are people that, that, that that know me by name. It's like, how the <laughs> fuck did that happen? Danny Breen and, 
uh, uh, but there's just, and you get crowded in and you're there, it's compact and it's smoky because you could smoke back then and you're drinking and, and it was wild. And Fred Kaz has his sunglasses on and, and he's, the, he's the, the artistic, the musical director. And he's in the corner with his grand piano and this big fucking brass gong with a, with a banger hanging from it. And he's, and he's just smoking cigarettes and he's got these hip glasses on and a, and a, and a, and a sailor's, a captain's cap he was a sailor and he invented the musical accompaniment of all of all sketch comedy mm -hmm. jazz player classical music player hipster fucking extraordinaire and he was there and he was directing shit from the fucking stage and you didn't even know that he was it was insinuating into the scenes and you're going what the fuck is happening here wow what is the experience like learning how to do sketches over there? Uh, when, when you go to the training center, the training center at that time, same thing. Is, uh, I don't know how much it is now, but but uh, you use a because I was such a student of it, like I just couldn't get enough of, of it. So mm. when I was when you're a student, you get in if there's room in the show, you get if there's room in the audience, you get to sit in the audience and watch. So what I would do is I would go to, if I knew that they were writing a new show, they usually would, there was three acts, two acts written and the third act was an improv act. And what I would do is I would go, oh, they're writing a new show. So they're working on material. So I, as a student at Second City, I, I would go to my classes. I would go across the street and have a burger or something. And then I would watch the improv set and I would see them creating these scenes and and working these scenes, and you say you see one scene, and then two days later you come and you go, oh, they made this adjustment to it. So you're starting to see like how a scene is crafted, what's released, what's maintained, how they change it, and sometimes they change it drastically. And the next time you go, it's like they change it back. And when you're working in sketch comedy, there they have you read the scripts, they have you you know they have you read the scripts of archival material, but they're also teaching you a naturalistic acting style and essentially what they're doing that i don't think they do this so much now is you're improvising writing a script mm. so what i mean by that is yes uh, so this is this is how it used to work uh, uh in the training center and because it was a and it was mirrored in the it was a mirror of what was going on in the, in, in the resident companies is um uh, you would you would learn how to do the second style of improvisation which is a naturalistic uh, improv style, uh, not heavy on, on, on characters, you know, that sort of a thing. And then you'd improvise something and you'd stop and uh, your teacher would go, all right, good. Uh, I got notes. Um, I want you to change that first beat. I want you to enter later. And then you'd work on that. And then you'd do it again and he'd have notes again. And then you do it again. You work on notes again. And then you would go take to when your, when your kid, when your, when your student show was, you throw it up there and see what happens and be recorded and you watch it later. And eventually it became something where it became so rote in your head that it's already written down before you write it down. Hmm. Does, does that make sense? It does. It does. When you wrote sketches, what were some of the things that you would try to do? Was it all like experimental or was there like certain things you wanted to try to get across through your sketches? Um, when I think about the sketches that, uh, when I think about the sketches that, that I learned how not to do, because that's really important is to go, what don't you want to do? What sketch is going to just fucking not work at all? The more clever the sketch was, the more it wouldn't work. 
the more connected it was to an emotional relationship, because it's really about the emotional relationship, the closer, the, the more connected it was to an emotional relationship, the more that the scene was going to flow and you were going to write that. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to want to use things that are in your real life. So uh, Colbert and I were both um, separately, of course, uh, going through therapy. And he said, let's do a therapy scene. And um, it started out. So we improvised a therapy scene where I was uh, I was his um, uh, I was his patient, client, patient. And uh, for some reason, when we started rehearsing it, he took out a desk, a wheelie chair. So he was like wheeling around. He wasn't using a bentwood. And the scene started out with me like at the top of the scene, frantically going, um, all that I want to do is I want somebody to talk to. I just need somebody to talk to. I just want someone that I could that I could connect to, that I could really connect to. And mm-hmm. Steve just in the middle of it went, okay, I am aware of the time. That'll be $80. And that was the <laughs> beginning of the scene. And it's like, I just want him to tell me something. And it turns out that he, so this is, this had nothing to do with what we were going through in therapy, but we used him because Steve is always just so high status uh, that he would be high status. And I was always low status because <laughs> you couldn't get high status with in a scene with Colbert. Um, uh, he, it turns out in this scene, he didn't know my name. I've been coming to him for eight years. He didn't know that I was gay. Um, he didn't remember that he told me to quit my job and to <laughs> leave my family. He didn't remember any of those things. And, um, that all worked because it was the idea that we got that all worked because at the beginning he said, uh, okay, I'll tell you what, and when we were rehearsing it, I remember rehearsing it for the first time. He said, I'll tell you what, uh, you want, you want feedback. I'll give you some feedback. Um, I think you're doing, I think you're doing better. Uh, and I want you to go out there and, uh, and, 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 and just be the best Doug that you can be. And the word Doug just kind of stood out to me in the rehearsal. And I'm like, I don't feel like Doug. And I went, I, I have a problem with that. And he goes, what's your problem? I said, my name's Dave. It's not Doug. And which just goes totally against everything that you're doing in improvisation. And I think that that's just a parallel to a subversive guide to improvisation. Yeah. God forbid you deny that, you know, exactly. And the scene was all about denial. It was just all about denial. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to deny that that's my name, then I'm going to, we're going to make a denial of every single thing in that scene. The scene is about uh, denial. The scene is about not listening. The scene is about not connecting. And when you have a simple idea at the beginning of a scene, Again, if it's clever, it ain't going to work. If you have a simple idea that my therapist doesn't of eight years does not know who I am, then that's going to that's going to drive you. That flows like the scene Maya where Steve and Colbert. I Carell, love that sketch uh, so much. I watch it on YouTube. It's on my favorites, and I just love it so much. It's just so great, and uh, it's really, really great. And um, you can't really, you can't really show it now, but it's everybody should watch it. Uh, Maya, uh, Maya, uh, it's under Maya's second city fiftieth anniversary. But what's the idea? The idea is this: when Carell and Colbert come, they come. Uh, Carell and Colbert get on the train. They get off at Colbert's hometown, and uh, they walk off the train. And um, 
a woman comes up, runs up to Corel, Colbert and says, Shirley, Shirley Wentworth. Oh my God, I can't believe you're here. Uh, 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 I, I, I have twins. I named one Shirley and the other Wentworth. It's like, will you come by later and we'll have coffee or something? And he goes, okay, mm. that'd be great. And she runs off and Corel says to Colbert, Shirley. And he goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, when I'm home, I'm an old black woman. And <laughs> when you do that, when you, got, when you go that, I remember, I remember it's in the book. I remember rehearsing that scene and going, that is so easy, so easy. It's just so fucking simple. And, um, and it, it just flowed. That scene, what you see on the YouTube, on the YouTubes, that's just how old they're. When you see on YouTube is almost exactly the first thing that we rehearsed it. And that never happens. That never happens. And it only happened, well, it happened, of course, because it was such a simple idea. But it also happened because the cast was great. The cast was great. Everybody was working for the betterment of everything. Yeah. Of the idea. To serve the idea. What's the idea? When Steve comes into this town, he's an old black woman. That's the idea. And let's just play the fuck that out. Let's not make it anything other than that. And usually when you have a great scene idea, um, Anything that you add to it that isn't part of that idea is going to kill the idea. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love so much about watching the Maya sketch is watching uh, Steve Carell and how he's seeing this weird thing happening in front of him, but he just stands there. He's not doing the actor expressions of, huh? What the? Hey, he's just standing there and you see the look on his face. He doesn't need to do anything else. And there are a couple of times in, in, in the video where they close up on Steve Carell, just reacting and everything you need is right there. He doesn't need to do anything else. Yep. Yep. He's a great actor. He's an amazing actor. And, and he knew whatever it was that he was going to do would potentially whatever he could do would potentially pull away from what was happening, what was happening on uh, between the characters in that moment. And it goes back to, that's one of the things that really, that has a, a major part in, in the, in my book and my, my, my methodology and philosophy is um, build up the pressure and then explode when you can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever problem you see, make it worse so that that actor can make it worse until the point where, until you get to a point where the actor can't fucking take it anymore and he explodes. So when Scott Allman comes in, uh, to Maya as the, uh, the racist, the, the town bigot, it's just one, it's, it's the tipping point And it's just, you, you know, it's like, it's fucking all over. And that just turns Colbert, I'm sorry, Carell just opens up Corel and what does Corel do? He goes, I don't know what's happening to me. Yeah. And that line there is like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening to me. He doesn't try to take control. Like, no, I'm going to protect the black person. It's like, what's happening to me? Yeah. And Colbert says, it's okay. It's okay. And that's what makes that a lovely scene. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of speaking of Stephen Colbert, uh, a story that I've heard you talk about a lot is how you shared this great moment with uh, with Colbert backstage. And it was a moment that reaffirmed that you definitely wanted to make this uh, a living. And I, w- I was wondering that if was you Colbert. Could... That was that was Colbert's story that Colbert wanted to make it his living. Mm. I just want to 
Oh, no, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yes. Right, 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 right. And I didn't know that. <laughs> what was really cool is that that Colbert, that's that's when Colbert decided. So what, what, what's your question? Because you want to lead into something. I want to get I want to make sure that I'm serving you. Uh, well, just uh, if you'll indulge in that story, because I'm, I'm sure you remember uh, that story very well. And it was a big moment oh. for him. And the fact that you were a part of that, that helped him reaffirm that he wanted to make comedy his his, his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It 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 was really. I I I remember it. I I, I wonder if I I I remember it happening, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But for Colbert, it was a huge deal, and it was mm-hmm. a huge. It really like gave him a direction to go in and 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 to go. I can embrace this comedy thing, and not only, and one of the reasons I can embrace this comedy thing is comedy is all about uh, improvisation. Is all about failure. And uh, and laughing at failure and realizing that failure is the funniest thing that you can do and to be honest with that. And the story was there was a woman. Um, uh, so there's something called a blackout. And a blackout is a, is 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 a short little funny little bit of business. And that's about you know that it's it doesn't you don't know who people are. It's just a joke and then it's done. And this is what's called an EBO, which is an extended blackout. So you you set something up, you have the blow. And then the scene ends and nobody cares. So there's a scene called um, Whales. And um, I think we just had it in the show. It was somebody else had written it. But when you're at Second City and you're putting a new show together, you'll take an existing scene and just put it in there, an old scene that somebody had done. And I can't remember who originally did it, but the scene is called Whales. And it was a, a folk singer at a folk club in the neighborhood in Chicago, doesn't matter. Uh, they used the name of a real folk club there. And she goes, uh, and so Jenna was taking this, was was playing this part. And she had a guitar there. And Carell and I, I'm sorry, Colbert and I were backstage waiting to get in to, and, uh, we were in the next scene. So we're backstage. And you always, that was such a great place to be backstage, listening to the audience, just love your friends. And it was yeah. like, God especially a crew like that. And Jenna is just one of the funniest fucking people in the world. And so Jenna's out there and you know, you do, you do these blackouts a lot, like so much and you're sometimes you just do it by rote. And you're not even thinking about it anymore. And I think that's what happened to Jenna. So the, the, the scene goes like this. It goes, um, uh, 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 welcome to the, uh, Welcome to the Last Act Cafe. Um, I'm going to sing, uh, I want to sing a song for you about the whales. I want to sing a song to you for the whales. And um, she does this. She has the guitar and she does a big deal of tuning it up. Bing, bam, 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 doing that with the key. And then um, she goes. <laughs> and she does that a couple times. And then it goes black and it's funny and it always worked and it's stupid. This time, though, Jenna went, hello, welcome to the Last Act Cafe. Um, and uh, uh, I'm going to do a song for you right now. And she tunes the guitar. And we're backstage. And Colin and I are backstage uh, waiting to go on. And she's tuning the guitar. And she goes, she tunes the guitar. And she goes, Bing. 
well, she forgot to say that it was a song for the whales. <laughs> and the audience is just sitting there going, what are we doing? What's this woman? And Colbert and I realize what happened. And we start laughing hysterically backstage. And we fall into, and he, the way he described it is, we fall into each other's arms like lovers. And we reach, I'm sorry, we fall into each other's arms like lovers. And we almost, and we tumble onto the stage because we're just backstage. And we're laughing so stupid hard. And Colbert tells this story and he's told it a couple of times. And what he says is, what he said is, he said, that was the moment that I realized that I wanted to, to dedicate my life to comedy. Mm. And it's, um, you know, to see where, where, where Colbert is right now, it's just, what a phenomenal thing to be a part of. Um, and so pr- I'm so, I'm so proud of that man. Yeah. Uh, he's such a good man. He's such a good man. So amazing. Amazing. And, and a great example of a mensch, um, just a really, really fine human being and, and, and handsome and his wife is beautiful. And when they lived in Chicago, they lived on the penthouse of a 13th, the 13th or 12th floor of a, of a building. And they had the penthouse or just what part it was broken up and their part of, uh, it was an old building from the twenties and their dining room was a ballroom and their bedroom was this beautiful room. And it's like, they, they had a balcony. It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. What a life. What, what a life. life. How does it feel for you to see people that have really risen, like Stephen Colbert and, and Steve Carell and Keenan Michael Key and all of these wonderful people that you now see are like superstars? How does it feel for you to know that you had a hand in helping those actors become the best that they could be? Well, it was it was a symbiotic relationship, you know. Um, one of the things that I, I remember is uh, because I, uh, you know, I, ha- I, ha- I have my I have my my moments of self doubt and uh, low self esteem, and I remember uh, I remember always when I was at second when I was in Second City with those guys. I remember thinking they're so fucking funny. They're just so funny, and they just hit it right away. And when we're, whenever we're doing scenes, they're just like they're fucking getting huge laughs out there. And it's like, how can I be so, how can I be that funny? And then one day after a couple of bong hits, I realized (laughs) they're funny because I'm facilitating their funny. Mm. They, they might be as funny as they are without me, but I am, I am setting them up to be funny. Mm. I'm understanding what it is that they need and I'm playing into their hands. And at that point I went, that's what I'm here to do. You know, that's, I'm here to facilitate that. And when it comes to somebody like, you know, and, 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 um, I, I, they had a hand in me being me too, you know, uh, and it's a symbiotic relationship when it comes to somebody like, uh, Keegan, because I was Keegan's director, uh, um, for me, the feeling that I have about Keegan is uh, uh, just give him space to play. Uh, give him give him space to play uh, because like 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 offer him something and see what happens, mm-hmm. and that's the coolest thing right there. The same thing working with Jordan Peele in Amsterdam. It's like just give him a place to play and and watch him bloom. Uh, as a director, because uh, Boom Chicago is just having their 30th anniversary now. And they came out with a book, uh, Boom, uh, 
I think it's called <laughs> the title is Boom, the 30 most important years in Dutch history, which is just such a funny name. <laughs> but uh, Jordan was there. Uh, so Jordan uh, was there. Um, Ike Barinholtz was there. Kay Cannon, who's a, you know, a, a wonderful director. Liz Kukowski, who's a writer. Um, uh, Seth Myers, Josh Myers, uh, all these people were there and I was hired to be a director for some of them. Uh, and, uh, oh, and then, and then, uh, Brendan Hunt, who was coach beard on, on, uh, Ted Lasso, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, Joe Kelly, who, uh, created with Seth Myers and, and, uh, and Brendan created Ted Lasso. Uh, and for me, I was like, uh, I, I don't feel like they were who they are and I was just working with them and I'm facilitating that. Uh, did I change, did I help make them who it is that they are? I, I don't, I, I don't think so. You know, uh, I gave them an opportunity to, to go, to sit back and go, I'm going to make you shine because I know what it is that you need to do here. And I'm going to create an environment so that you can creatively, um, you can incubate these great ideas in it. And I was a director of, I was Brendan's director of a, a show that he did that ran a long time, went to, uh, sun, uh, went to the HBO comedy festival in uh, whatever city that was in. Uh, but it's about sitting back. It's like when you're hired to be a director or a coach, your job is to go, how do I set up an environment so that you can have this great stuff so that you can do these wonderful things and let them shine and to sit back. Because one of the, one of the worst things that one of the hardest things about being a director at second city uh, or any, any sketch comedy thing that you're doing is um You'll sit. I remember when I was directing the main stage at Second City is I would go, uh, I would sit in the audience to see what the audience was feeling about it. Because you kind of want to sit backstage. You want to see what the audience is feeling. And and somebody gets a huge laugh. An actor gets a huge laugh. And you hear one audience member go, that guy's funny. And you don't want to whisper in their ear. That was my line that I gave. <laughs> right. That was that's my line. Because you don't you don't. It's the self, it's the, there is no job description. It's the most selfless job that you can have. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one gift that you definitely gave to the world is you did a TED Talk not too long ago. Yeah. 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 What yeah. was that experience uh, uh, like? Uh, uh, it was the, one of the hardest things that I've ever done, second to writing a book. Uh, the TED Talk is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, uh, one of the things that they told me is, uh, they said, we want you to do this Ted talk, but it can't be about improvisation because we've already had a Ted talk about improvisation. So I'm like, well, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, it ends up, uh, uh, I had to figure out a way to make it about improvisation without making it about improvisation. Um, it was very stressful. And hmm, uh, I wish it was better organized. Really? That's yeah. For me, I wish it was better organized uh, because uh, a lot of my stress came from them not being organized. And it looks fantastic. Uh, it really like the TED Talk looks fantastic. But uh, a lot of it was that they 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 didn't they they didn't give me what it was that, that helped me bloom. I had to figure that out by myself. Mm. Um, but it was a great exercise for me in, in saying how in, in, in crafting something that says, how has improvisation bettered my life 
and how can I mean, I mean how how does uh, whatever how does improv how has improvisation bettered my life and because it's a TED talk how can it better somebody else's life and um, a lot of it was about me and I think this is really an important thing when it comes to writing a book or doing a TED talk um, and 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 uh, when I was writing the memoir I was telling I was talking to as many people as I could in the book industry about what are you looking for? And I remember talking to one guy who's a who works at a big publishing place in New York. And I said, I'm thinking about putting a memoir in. And he goes, if you're putting a memoir in, it better bleed. It's got to bleed. And I went, oh, you mean, he said, this is what I mean. If it's all about how great you are, I'm not interested in it. Mm. If it shows you struggling, that's what I'm interested in. It's what, how did you struggle? How did your struggle make you a stronger person? And that's what the TED Talk is about. I love how you begin the TED Talk. You begin by just bringing someone up on stage, have them sit in a chair and goes, look what he's doing. He's just sitting. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> right, right. He's the only person I know. And I've watched, a, I watched a, a, way too many TED Talks before I did mine. It's the only time that anybody's been on stage and been used as a prop and didn't do a damn thing. No, he so never guy, got Daniel, out of the chair, didn't do anything. Nope, nope. Just uh, he sat in the chair and uh, he was a student of mine in because it was filmed in Auckland, uh, New Zealand. And he was a student of mine in Auckland. I love the Auckland people. I just love them. And I had him just sit in the chair. And it's all about sitting in it. Like whatever it is that's happening to you, feel the feelings you're feeling the moment you feel those feelings. So that was a way for me to get some of my lines in that I use in teaching to uh, uh, to get my line. There were two lines that were there that were that are in the book. It's like feel the feelings you're feeling the moment you're feeling the feelings, and you will know what you need to know when you need to know what you need to know. And both of those are about being patient. And and you know we were talking earlier about taking your time and feeling the moments and sitting in it and don't being don't your life is not a rush. And I, the title of the the TED talk is uh, uh, <laughs> the process of your life is the purpose of your life or something like that. Uh, or the process of your life is the perfect, the purpose of your life or something. Yeah. Like that. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and that's essentially what improvisation is about. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're there to watch you be in process. I'm living my life in order to, it's not about me getting to the end of my life. It's me going, I, I, I need to, to experience every beat to use an improv uh, terminology. I, I need to live in every beat that I'm living in. I need to be present to the beats that I'm living in. And even though, you know, um, uh, the moment, the moment might be uncomfortable, me making it uncomfortable, me going, this is uncomfortable, doesn't make me disappear from it. Mm. And the only way out is through and panic will not help you anyway. Never. Panic will never help you, you know? And I felt like in that, in the story there, you know, I felt like I was about to drown. You know, there's a part of that story where I'm in this cave stream in the middle of fucking New Zealand. And it's more dangerous than the two hosts that brought me there ever knew that it could be. And I felt like I was going to drown. Yeah. And you talk about it in the book too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the TED Talk is essentially in the in the, in the book. The, the the you know I, I zhuzhed it up a little bit, but it's in the book. 
but yeah. it is that feeling of like, what does panic do? So all that you can do with your, for me, I feel like anything that you can do with your life, those moments where it's like, this is horribly uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, uh, here we are. We're going to be here for, for a while. You know, life isn't the express train. Life is the, is the, you know, the dairy train or whatever they call it, you know, the dairy route where we stop at every place just to drop off the milk. But that's what it is. Yeah. Just like the good times are. The good times are like, oh, I want this to last forever. We're like, well, fella, it's not. So appreciate <laughs> it while you can. Absolutely. You know? you know, I'm always using that line of yours so many times. Feel the feelings that you're feeling the moment you feel those feelings. And when I express that to students, that's always a big eye-opening moment. And that's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of yours because I love how you just take the thinking out of the improv. You know, we're not here to do math. We're here to, we're here to, we're here to feel. And that's why I love that line. So but it's also me kind of admitting that I steal most of your material, but, um, but I just love the ability to just watch students when they have that revelation of, Oh, I don't need to think about what's inside this bakery. I don't need to worry about getting, you know, the, the cupcakes frosted. I just need to worry about what's our situation. What's the us of this moment right now. Right. 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 And, and, uh, and hopefully the book gets that across. And I, and I think, I think it does. Um, uh, because they're the majority, of, as far as I know, all improv schools say you need to get the, the who, the what and the where out at the beginning of the scene. And that takes the humanity out of it. And, and for me, it's like my, the, the, the thing that I've been doing a lot lately, uh, this exercise is not in the book, but I, uh, is uh, what I'll do is how I'll have everybody, I'll have like 15 or 16 students walk around the space and I never use a stage. I always use the floor, walk around the space and I'll have people freeze and they'll freeze in position and I'll tap two people out. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tag two people and everybody else leaves and we'll just look at those two people in tableau with each other and go, look at what the fuck is happening here. Yeah, there's a scene here and it's just happening and they don't they didn't we didn't plan it. This is what's happening. And then I'll ask one of them, like, based upon this spatial relationship that we have, what do you feel like saying to that person? And they'll go. I didn't make it. That's their line. And I'm like, that fucking totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And we're starting the scene right in the middle. And if somebody says, I didn't make it, what's the, what's the pushback that that person's going to give in order to make that scene have this dynamic? Does it matter where they are? It doesn't matter where they are. And as I say in the book, the only people that, and the only people in an improv audience who are wondering where you are are improv teachers. Nobody else cares where you are. You know, Nobody I have a theory, and I'm wondering if you agree with this or not. I'm wondering if the reason why so many improvisers stress who, what, where a lot is maybe there's a part of them that underestimates the audience. And maybe there's oh, this, yes. yeah, this idea of, well, if we don't prove the who, what, where to the audience, they're not going to believe it. So we have to prove that this is a bank. We have to prove, look, there's an ATM machine. Do you think that there's a lot of underestimating of the audience? A hundred percent. And I don't, I don't, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, and, and for me, I, I, again, I think it's in the book. It's been a while since I've read it. I think it's in the book where you go, uh, where, where 
the show, the, the title of the theater probably has improv in it. The, not, the title of your show probably has improv in it. Your cast title has improv in it. You're called improvisers. What the fuck do you think people are going to think? It's improvised. And if I have to prove to you that it's improvised, no, I don't have to prove to you anything. You're already coming there assuming that it's improv. And if it's so good that it seems that it's written, well, we win. Right. I think that's the best compliment you could get. Absolutely. And the fact that I've got it, I've got, I've, so when I, when I, I feel, when, when I'm taught that I've got to make sure that the audience knows that we're improvising, that gets in the way of my flow. That gets in the way of us creating the scene because nobody does that. Nobody does that. No play does that. Like, fuck you. No play has at the beginning of the play, no play that I want to see has at the beginning of it saying, all right, let's take a fucking play. Let's take a play. Let's take a play. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, 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 Martha. Yes, George. Don't you love working at this university where we are and you're an English professor and uh, my daddy runs the school? And it's like, yeah, Martha, I really love that. Let's have those two people, Sandy and whatever the fuck is, George, whatever his name is, come over for dinner and we can have a nice little dinner together. Nobody talks like that. Nobody talks like that. And, and, and Edward Albee would not write Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in that way, God damn it. <laughs> and like nobody, and, and how much improv have you seen where you're looking, where I'm looking at somebody and they go, nobody talks like that. And there was a student in my class the other day uh, who, who, who said, mom always liked you best. No, nobody talks like that. Nobody says, this is the greatest prom I've ever been to. Shut the fuck up. Nobody says that. <laughs> this is what they say. I fucking hate prom. Or I didn't dress right. Or I'm so fat. Or can we get out of here? I'm uncomfortable. That's what people say at prom. Or if it's me, the acid's kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I always like to think of improv as... It's an examination and a slight exaggeration of real life, but it's still, you know, real life that we portray. And there's no need for us to add quirky things in there. And I can't tell you, Dave, how many times I've done scenes where we're not looking, I'm not looking for who, what, where, or any of that. And even though the audience didn't really know what was going on, they love the hell out of it. You know? That's what I mean. Like nobody cares where the fuck you are. Right. And I had a groundling sit in on my dropping class when I was teaching a uh, dropping class here. And that uh, was a fucking great scene. And then afterwards, you know, the, he's in the, he was in the groundlings. And, and he said, um, I said, so Tom, what'd you think of that? And he goes, would have been funny if I knew where you were. It's like, <laughs> what? What? Do you, it was funny. Yeah, it would have been funnier. It's like, uh, how? And then when I watch groundling scenes, it's like, what do they push? They push get the who, the what, and the where out at the beginning of the scene. And then the rest of that scene, I don't believe because you've set up the wrong thing. You've set up the location and the activity, but you haven't set up the emotional connection between the two people. And that's what I'm there to see. I don't go to, I, I mean, let's go, honey, let's go to an improv show so I can see somebody describe the inside of a bank. <laughs> right. Said no one ever. <laughs> right. If you want to know what the inside of a bank looks like, you, you go to a freaking bank, you know? And here's another thing. Who goes to a fucking bank? I never, I haven't been to a bank and I, you know, I'll, I'll go to a bank because Laura has to go to the bank. And I'm like, 
I don't go to a bank. I don't. I mean, I have a bank, but it's. I don't know where. It's in Texas, I think. It's a. I don't know. It's a post office box in Texas. <laughs> USAA. They're very good. I like them very much. San Antonio. Uh, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. And and I, and I think that if anybody's listening to this, the next time they go to an improv show, stop and really listen to the way that people are talking to each other and realize that nobody talks that way. Right. And, you know, the audience isn't sitting there with some sort of checklist going, okay, I know where they are. Okay, I know when this is happening. Okay, I understand when they met. The audience wants to be surprised. Absolutely. And they also want to think that they know what the fuck is going on. So if we start a scene saying, let's get out of here, it's like, no, we can't get out of here. No, we have to. Let's. I, I'm tired of sitting here. It's like, you can't be tired of sitting here. We have to leave. It's like, no, we can't leave. It's like, of course we can leave. We can do whatever the fuck we want to do. And they're going, oh, those two people, they're in prison or whatever it's going to be. But really, they're two twins in a womb. <laughs> now, there's a scene I've never seen. Yeah. So if you get a suggestion of two twins in a womb, you what are they going to do? They're going to play two twins in a room in a womb. Right. But if I don't know where they are, but I think that I know where they are. And then later on we show where they are. It's like, Oh, what do you mean? They're in iron lungs. And then you go, Oh, right. At the beginning. Yeah. He said, I'm finding it a little hard to breathe in this room. Can we leave? <laughs> and it's like, because everything's set up there. But I'm with you, man. I don't think that we need to... I, I think people think that the audience is stupid. But if you think about the two... you know, For me, I use two examples of uh, the greatest... Uh, two great um, pilot episodes of television shows. Uh, and I use these as an example in my classes. One is um, uh, Cheers. The, uh, the, opening, the opening shot of the... Of the the pilot of Cheers, the first episode. Uh, a kid, you, you know the Cheers set in your mind. You know what yeah. that is, right? The Cheers yeah. set. So in your mind, the, you see the kid walking down the stairs. He comes in, opens the door, a kid, and he closes the door and he walks in and he's standing right, you know, where, you know, <laughs> where uh, usually somebody, somebody's usually sitting there, but nobody's in the bar. And he comes in, he goes, hello, hello, anybody here? Anybody here? And he turns around and he leaves. No explanation. No explanation at all. Like, wow, that pulled me in. Here's another one. Uh, smash cut. RV driving too fast down a desert road. Empty desert road in the middle of desert. And there's a pair of trousers tied to the side view mirror. What? Breaking Bad. And, and like, no explanation. No explanation. Yeah, who cares how the trousers got there? They're there. Who cares? And, and don't, don't feed this, because who, I, I don't, I don't want to watch the first episode of a shitty sitcom. Hi, Carl. Thank you for coming to my bakery where I am baking a wedding cake for you and your wife. I hope your ex-wife doesn't show up. Bing bong. Dolores, what are you doing here? And it's like, oh, yeah. really? Fucking really? This is the best prom I've ever had. I really love going to the circus with you. Um, uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Yeah. 
As you look back at your entire journey and seeing where you are today, what reflections do you have on your on your story? What do you mean reflections? What what comes to mind as you think about maybe this is a better way of saying it. What comes to your mind when you think about where you've been and how you got to where you're at today? Fate has so much to do with what happens in our life. You know, fate and just the idea of of being where it is that you are. There's also a sense of privilege that that I have because uh, I uh, I was a child. I was one of three children of two union uh, employee, two union uh, members, uh, and because they were union members, I we got our health care taken care of. We got housing taken care of. So I had a financial, I would, I, I never lacked anything. Not that I was, not that we lived high in the hog, but, um, uh, those fate put me into that situation. I was also, I also happened to be in those situations when exciting things were happening. Um, uh, Sam Wasson, who wrote the book um, Improv Nation, which I think is a great book. It's a history of American improvisation. Um, when he was on my podcast, uh, ADD Comedy with Dave Rosowski, when he was on my podcast, he said, you do realize that you were in Chicago during the golden age of improvisation. And I went, oh, yeah, I was. I just happened to be in Chicago at that time. I just happened to be in Chicago at that time with meeting people who I met at that time. And so uh, that's what it was. And, and, and it was also when you know what your bliss is, this is such a, such a touchy feely thing, but when you know what your bliss is, you're going to seek it out and you're going to want to sit in that bliss. You know, the fact that I was able to sit in, which you can't do anymore. I was able to sit in on so many improv classes at Second City that I had no business being in those classes, but I was able to sneak in and to watch it. And and, and it was also at a time when, and this is really an important thing, um, at least for, for me and my training, because I was in Chicago when when modern improvisation was in, it was in its infancy, I, my teachers were directors of theater, actors in theater, playwrights in theater. Uh, they were my teachers teaching me improvisation, which connected me, an actor at that time, because there was no such thing as an improviser, connecting me to theater and making me an improviser who was a theatrical improviser. Now, the people that are taking improv classes are taking improv classes from people that were improvising. There's no, there's no theatrical history that they necessarily have, um, which is fine because this is what it is. But I happen to be getting great training in a place, in places where uh, the teachers were great actors. And that had a lot to do with it, but it all, it all, it's all chalked up to fate and going and early on saying, this is what I want. If you like donuts, you're going to fucking go to just every fucking donut shop you, you can and try out their donuts. And when you find a donut that you love, um, donut time is a British, Australian, New Zealand donut company. 
and they're fucking great donuts. So when I go to England or the UK in general, uh, or when I go to Australia or New Zealand, I'm going to seek out donut time. And it's the same thing with, with improv teachers that I had. So that, I don't know, maybe that answered the question. I, I think it did. I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Dave, we've come to the final question of our talk today. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? What other people think of you is none of your business. Hmm. Absolutely. There's, and there's that, that's not, that, that's, that's, there's no, there's no question about that. There's no, there's no debating that. None. And, and it's not kind of. Yeah. There, what, what anyone thinks about you, what other people think about you is none of your fucking business. And that's really hard because you really want to see what did that person write about in the review of my book and how dare they <laughs> or, or, or look at the great thing they wrote about me. None of those matter. Hmm. If it's great, it doesn't matter. It might make you feel good, but ultimately it fucking doesn't matter because tomorrow I'm going to forget it and I'm going to keep doing what it is that I'm doing. You know, if you're going to, but it's, it's really tough. Um, uh, and it goes hand in hand with, uh, the only source of suffering is non-acceptance. And that's a big one too. Like whatever it is that you're suffering from, it's because there's something that you haven't accepted. And those things are our first cousins if they're not siblings, you know? I hear you. Dave, this has been such a personal honor for me. Thank you so much for your time today. You are my improv hero and just thank you so much. You're welcome so much. It's just been a joy. I'll be talking to you. I want to hug you, but it's tough to do, but I'll hug you later. (laughs) Next time we meet, that'll be the first thing we do. Just a big old bear hug between the two of us. Yes, please. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Dave. You're welcome. Wow, this felt like a masterclass. So much great wisdom and knowledge in this conversation. And now you can see why this guy is definitely my hero. There are not enough numbers to count all of my thank yous, but here's one. Thank you so much, Dave, for your time and for doing what you do, brother. Everyone, please find out more about this amazing man by visiting his website, davidrozowski.com, to learn more about his shows and workshops. And be sure to pick up your copy of his new book, A Subversive's Guide to Improvisation, now available on paperback at Amazon.com and for ebook pre-orders. You can also find out more about me at TogetherByMyself.com. Contact me anytime for my solo improv show, improv workshops, and magic shows for all occasions. Thanks, everyone, for spending your time with me today. I look forward to spending more time with you right here on Improv and Magic. Take care, my friends.